Hello, this is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist, episode 51. Welcome back. The purpose of this podcast is to explore philosophy, psychology, and science with an emphasis on the great philosopher George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Some central points of this podcast are one, that there is more going on in the world than blind, purposeless, naturalistic materialism. And what is this? It's called Geist in German, translated as mind or spirit in English. Two, that evolution is central to the universe. Three, that there is no separate higher realm, but there is a higher realm spirit within us all. And four, that we are all part of an historical process of increasing the consciousness of spirit, which leads to greater freedom and rationality in the world. And that brings us to the topic of this episode. There's certainly been a historical process of increasing freedom and rationality in the world over the centuries, over the millennia. And at the same time, however, this progress is often, most often, the result of bloodshed. One of Hegel's most famous quotes addresses this. He said, quote, Regarding history as the slaughter bench at which the happiness of peoples, the wisdom of states, and the virtue of individuals have been victimized, the question involuntarily arises, to what principle, to what final aim these enormous sacrifices have been offered, end quote. And he warns that any periods of happiness are actually times when history, the marching forward of Geist, is stalled. He says, quote, History is not the soil in which happiness grows. The periods of happiness in it are the blank pages of history, end quote. So what is the goal here in history? Well, as I said in the intro, the, the goal is increasing awareness of spirit within us so that by so recognizing it, we can make the world become freer and more rational. That's the purpose. And this purpose is a long struggle and it's being worked out through history. Again, there's no separate realm. There's no puppet master pulling the strings here. It's up for us to accept the challenge and make things happen. And as Hegel makes clear, this often has resulted in bloody and horrific wars. And you know, a study of history, read the history books you often read about kings and queens, dictators, presidents, as well as cultural contributions, artwork, inventions, religions, philosophies, and so forth. But a careful examination shows that the history of the world, unfortunately, is essentially one of violent confrontation, one after another, after another, after another, of tribe against tribe, group against group, nation against nation. Now, it's clear when countries go to war, they are not doing so to further the advancement of Geist in the world. That's not their stated objective. But what I'm going to be discussing this in this episode is how war, while being the dark side of history is actually central to humanity increasing its freedom and rationality through the dialectical process of confrontation and resolution, at least so far. Now, let me be clear, I'm not advocating war by any stretch. And certainly when groups are attacked, uh, they have a right to defend themselves. And I'm not saying that a logically superior and freer nation has any right to attack another nation, not at all. That if this nation is less free or less rational, that's not a basis for, for starting a war with that nation. I'm not advocating this. Let me be clear on this. I'm not advocating actually anything here other than the progress of freedom and rationality in the world through peaceful means. But what I will be showing is, is though, throughout history, the side of the fight that had the freer society, that had the more rational state, often prevailed. 
Not always. There are exceptions, but I believe over the fullness of time, this trend is correct. And the reason this is so is because the freer nation, the freer tribe, the freer group has a greater motivation to win than the less free nation, tribe, or group. And this almost has a Darwinian ring to it. The survival of the fittest may include valuing greater freedom and rationality as part of being the fittest. We covered in the last episode that Clausewitz identified three factors in war, an emotional element of the people, the policy of the state, and the randomness of the actual fighting. And the advance of humanity is not one of them. However, we will be discussing how the evidence suggests that freedom does, in fact, have a role to play in conflicts. And it, it really, in general, points to who is more likely to win these conflicts. It's where the smart money bets. Now, this knowledge of freedom can be conscious or unconscious among people's leaders and soldiers. But I, I will be attempting to show how when armies are fighting for their freedom, when one side has people that are more or less free versus another side that are just subjugated soldiers being told to fight, that this can become an advantage in warfare for the for the freer side. It can lead to more battles and wars being won. And as a result, the cause of freedom and rationality among civilizations is increased. So in a Darwinian sense, having people be free, feel free, may make them want to fight to defend this freedom. That's what I believe. And they'll want to fight and win to a greater extent than those being forced to fight and someone's not free. Also, when people sense that their leader is on the right side of history, uh, they will tend to follow their leaders more, more willingly and prove to be more effective in fighting than someone that just follows orders from a leader whose aims are unknown or irrelevant. So that's my premise. Now let's take a look at history to see what supports this. Well, in his lectures on the philosophy of history, Hegel denotes three general levels of, of freedom. First is the most ancient, where only one person was free, the king or the ruler or the pharaoh. And all the other people in the land were servants to the one king. The next stage is where a group of people are free, but not all. It was only later that the concept of all people are free took hold. And we covered this in detail in episode 20 last year. Now, I recognize to a certain extent, as do many scholars, that this view of Hegel can have a certain Eurocentric view of the world and history, particularly as he associates Christianity with the last stage and the, the Greeks and Romans with this, the middle stage of some being free. Now, we covered Hegel's Eurocentric views in detail in episode 32 on racism and the dark side of the Enlightenment, so I'm not going to go over that again. Uh, if you want to listen, it's episode 32. However, the key point is to recognize the progression of freedom within the world and how this idea spread. And certainly there are many ways that it can be adopted through through rationality, through faith, through philosophy. But what I want to center on is how it can be spread through the winning of battles. And again, my thesis is that when people have freedom within a state, they are more willing to fight harder and fight smarter than if they do not have this freedom. Now, before I get into some more backup, 
obviously there are exceptions to this this thesis. There, there are exceptions where despotic rulers have triumphed over freer people. There are wars where free people fight other free people, and when despots go at it against each other. But I believe a review of history shows the following to be the case, that the world has been evolving into a freer, more rational place very slowly, but the progress is certainly there if you look over centuries, over millennia. And significant wars have played a major role in achieving this and advancing freedom. And there may be setbacks in the future. And I do not have a crystal ball. As Hegel said, the owl of Minerva takes flight at dusk, meaning that we really understand history after the fact. But I do believe the trend is clear if one looks at the broad sweep of history. Now, one more point. I will be focusing primarily on battles in the West. And that's because the history of the West is better known to me. However, I'm not saying that the East is somehow lacking here, that the, the, the West is superior to the East. I'm not saying that at all. Uh, I really believe we are one world, we are one people all over. And, but there are certainly differences between the cultures and the groups, and we must respect that and, and support that. Now, just an example, we've discussed here before how the in the East they tend to view things more in a circular fashion, where in the West it's more linear. The yin-yang symbol, circular symbol of the East shows the circular concept. So does much of the, the classic work, the Chinese I Ching, which we discussed back in episode 30 last year. And the Western view is probably better exemplified by a linear view of things, a historical linear view of time. And it may come to pass that the circular paradigm ends up being perceived as working better, even for human advancement. And I believe that if one gets deep into Hegel, the circular pattern emerges as well. Well, both circular and historical are at work with Hegel, but more on that in a future episode. Another difference, East and West in general, is the difference between the focus on family and on the individual. Well, of course, family is of great importance, East and West, in all cultures. It's central. Many, however, have pointed out that there seems to be more emphasis put on family in the East and more emphasis put on the individual in the West, the rugged individual. And perhaps I'll do an entire episode on this as well in the future. But my point is that in referring to these Western battles, I'm not saying that the West is superior or deserves more attention. Not at all. What I am saying, though, is that freedom and rationality are on the ascension and that the conflicts I shall speak of provide some evidence for this. Okay, let's get into it. The origin of this hypothesis of mine goes back to ancient Greece. And the biggest reason being that Greece is generally regarded as the birthplace of democracy and the notion of a free citizen. It's generally acknowledged by historians that the first really discernible concept of the free citizen was in ancient Greece beginning about the 8th century BCE in the various city-states. It was not universal. Women and slaves could not be citizens, but it, but it did uh, allow freedom for some. Some were free. And the reason this is so important is that many scholars believe that in the Greco-Persian Wars, 499 to 449 BC, the fact that the Greeks had this form of democracy helped them win the long war with Persia. Persia was ruled by one man, Darius, and then later his son, Xerxes. It was an autocracy, and there was nothing equivalent to democracy there. Let me provide a quote describing this. Quote, 
The polis was grounded in the rule of law, which meant that no man, no matter who he might be, was master, and all men were subject to the same rules. It was also grounded in the notion of citizenship, the idea that every man born from the blood of the community has a share in power and responsibility. It meant that Greeks were willing to live, fight, and die for their polis, end quote. No, they did not have to be coerced to fight. They were willing to fight and die for the city-state. There was another factor. Their increased willingness to fight allowed them to advance their military techniques and prowess. To quote Greek scholar D.M. Pritchard, quote, Ancient Athens developed democracy to a higher level than any other state before modern times. It was the leading cultural innovator of its age. This state is rightly revered for its political and cultural achievements. What is less well known is its extraordinary record of military success. Athens transformed ancient warfare and became one of the ancient world's superpowers. There was a strong case that democracy was a major reason for the success, end quote. And here's another quote from Pritchard, quote, More than any other polis, this state invented or perfected new forms of combat, strategy, and military organization. It was directly responsible for raising the scale of Greek warfare by an order of magnitude. This represented a qualitative change from its military record before the democracy, end quote. Scholars often point to the Athens' victory at Marathon versus the Persians and later to the sea battle at Salamis as being decisive wins. But not only for Athens, for democracy itself, and as many scholars contain for Western civilization itself. You can see this just by doing a search of the literature. I found an article published earlier this year called The Battle of Marathon Saved Western Civilization 2,500 Years Ago. There's this quote on the Battle of Marathon that I found, uh, quote, throughout history, its significance and symbolism have been frequently cited. The first time that a democratic and free state, the nucleus of all traditionally Western ideas, defeated a despotic Eastern invader and preserved its unique traditions that would one day be adopted around the world. The reality is perhaps more complex. It's likely the Marathon's fame will last for centuries more to come, end quote. And it's not that Athens never lost another battle. As I mentioned, there are exceptions. And, for example, in the Peloponnesian Wars, Athens fought Sparta, two Greek states going head-to-head, 431 to 404 BCE. And democratic Athens was defeated by the oligarchic Sparta, a less free city-state. Athens was later to regain some of its power, and the concept of democracy survived. Not long after this, Alexander the Great, who was a Greek Macedonian, conquered much of the Mediterranean world and, and far into the Eastern world. While his motives are debated, he did seem to promote many values associated with freedom and rationality. This is probably of no surprise as the teacher was Aristotle. And just as an aside, this completed perhaps the greatest four-generational tutelage in the history of Western thought. Plato was a student of Socrates and was directly influenced by Socrates. Aristotle, in turn, was a student of Plato and was also directly influenced by Plato. And then from three generations of philosophers, we turn to Alexander, who was taught directly by Aristotle. Alexander was born in 356 BCE and died in 323 BCE at the mere age of 33 he was able to conquer all of Greece and then the entire Persian Empire and then it well into India and Egypt as well. As a result, Greek culture spread. Some key points about Alexander. He t- tended to allow the lands he conquered to maintain their customs under one coordinated oversight. He 
in today's terms, he would be considered a globalist. And many of the lands he conquered considered him a hero, even a god, because of this. He founded many cities in his name, perhaps the most well-known one being Alexandria in Egypt, and which became the intellectual capital of the world. Its famous library held some 700,000 scrolls. It's the greatest bank of knowledge in the world at the time. Now, one cannot say that it was the freedom and rationality of the Greek culture alone that made all this possible. But one can certainly see that Alexander's Greek background, the intellectual tradition, the worldview, contributed to his military genius, his, his view of how to handle the conquered territories, and his ruling style. As a result of Alexander, Greek became the first common language as the lands he conquered learned it. Um, and in, in speaking of Alexander, this would be a good time to bring up Hegel's notion of world historical individuals. To quote Robert Tucker, quote, according to Hegel, universal history is the realization of the idea of reason in a succession of national spirits. These are manifest in the deeds of heroes, of world historical individuals, such as Alexander the Great, Caesar, and Napoleon, end quote. And he explains that these individuals are not always aware of the true reasons for the great goals they are accomplishing. He says, quote, it is not actualized as a consequence of men consciously adopting it as their ideal and striving to translate it into reality through their mode of life and conduct. It is not, as it were, through the citation of reason that reason is realized in history, end quote. So how is it accomplished? Well, Hegel provides the explanation. Let me quote Hegel, quote, Such are all great historical men whose own particular aims involve those large issues which are the will of the world spirit. They may be called heroes inasmuch as they derive their purposes and their vocation, not from the calm, regular course of things sanctioned by the existing order, but from a concealed font, one which is not attained to phenomenal present existence, from that inner spirit still hidden beneath the surface, which impinging on the outer world is on a shell bursted into pieces because it is another kernel than that which belonged to the shell in question. They are men, therefore, who appear to draw the impulse of their life from themselves and whose deeds have produced a condition of things in a complex of historical relations which should appear to be only their interest and their work. Such individuals had no consciousness of the general idea they were unfolding while prosecuting those aims of theirs. On the contrary, they were practical political men, but at the same time they were thinking men who had an insight into the requirements of the time, what was ripe for development. This was the very truth for their age, for their world, end quote. Hegel goes on. Great men have formed purposes to satisfy themselves, not others. Whatever prudent designs and counsels they might have learned from others would be the most limited and inconsistent features in their career. For it was they who best understood affairs, from whom others learned and approved, or at least acquiesced in their policy. For that spirit which had taken this fresh step in history is the inmost soul of all individuals, but in a state of unconsciousness which the great men in question aroused, their fellows therefore follow these soul leaders, for they feel the irresistible power of their own inner spirit thus embodied. If we go on to cast a look at the fate of these world historical persons whose vocation it was to be the agents of the world spirit, we shall find it to have been no happy one. They attained no calm enjoyment. Their whole life was labor and trouble. Their whole nature was not else but their master passion. 
When their object is attained, they fall off like empty hulls from the kernel. They die early, like Alexander. They are murdered like Caesar, transported to St. Helena, like Napoleon, end quote. This is what we're referring to with the title of this podcast, The Cunning of Geist. And this inner kernel is about reason, about freedom, and about love as well. There have been many such individuals throughout history. George Washington, for one. I believe there would not have been a United States without him. He was a central individual in the new country that the new country could rally around. And Abraham Lincoln is certainly another, certainly a world historical figure in my view. You know, over 360,000 Union soldiers fighting for the North gave the ultimate sacrifice in that war. For what reason? Why not just let the South secede from the country with its slavery? They fought and died for two reasons, to hold the country together and to make it free. I believe many in the North understood this exactly under Lincoln's command. This is in line with what Hegel said that I quoted earlier, quote, Their fellows therefore follow these soul leaders, for they feel the irresistible power of their own inner spirit thus embodied, end quote. I also believe Winston Churchill played such a role in galvanizing the British people to withstand the Nazi onslaught and rallied his country and its allies to defeat Hitler. And what about today? Well, the advance of freedom throughout the world following the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991 had many proclaiming that the end of history had arrived, that liberal democracies had finally triumphed. And we did the entire last episode on this. Say goodbye to the end of history, episode 50. You know, we said there's no end of history, that war and misery unfortunately continues as witnessed by the war in Ukraine. While it is too early to say how it will turn out, the stunning success of the Ukrainians in defending their nation speaks volumes for what we have been discussing. When you're fighting for your own freedom and not just on orders from above, you have a lot more at stake and much greater motivation. Another potential conflict looming on the horizon is the authoritarian Chinese government controlled by the Chinese Communist Party and how it is structured so differently from Western nations. What is important to understand is China's gaining in so many areas. They're gaining economically, militarily, technologically. And as they are gaining, it appears as well that the West, and the United States in particular, may be weakening. Internal dissension is very high. And there's a debt cycle that threatens to undermine the dollar as the world's currency. Now, the United States still leaves China in many areas, but China is emerging as a clear rival to Western dominance. And we'll see how this plays out in the fullness of time. So to summarize, we have seen that wars and conflict are part of history. Perhaps they are synonymous with history, as Hegel suggests. And a Hegelian sublation, a dialectic, often occurs through conflict leading to resolution. And while terribly awful, wars can also improve conditions at the end of the day, at times, by resulting in greater freedom and rationality prevailing. And we can look back and be thankful that the Greeks were not defeated in the early stages of their democracy, setting the stage for some of the best philosophy and art the world has seen. And we can appreciate the multicultural efforts of Alexander in bringing the Greek world and its values to the entire Mediterranean and Middle East. And more recently, we can appreciate the great American Civil War and its ending slavery in the country. And of course, the 20th century's great wars to defeat fascism. As Hegel says, freedom and rationality are a kernel within all of us and is up to us to allow it to express itself through right action. Freedom and reason are not achieved by shouting it from the mountaintops. It is our hands and our legs, our deeds, that bring it about. So, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. 
please follow the podcast Facebook page at Cunning of Geist, where I'll be listing all the references cited here. And I often post relevant comments between episodes on this page, so please be sure to check it out. And you can follow me on Twitter, also at Cunning of Geist. Be sure to like, rate, and review this podcast wherever you listen. And please tell your like-minded friends about it. If you enjoy it, spread the word. And feel free to share these episodes on social media. And lastly, if you're not a member of the Hegel Study Group on Facebook, please consider joining. We'd love to have you. This is Gregory Novak. This is The Cunning of Geist. See you next time.